starting in December 2015. A new epic megaseries. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality proudly presents Batman v Superman. A 13-part miniseries from Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. John M. Wilson and Magnus shine a spotlight on a crapload of Batman comics and a crapload of Superman comics. All this preparation for the theatrical release of Batman v Superman. Dawn of Justice. And once that's all over, we'll take a five-hour-long look back at 2013's Man of Steel. Finally, we will come together again to discuss our thoughts on the Batman v Superman film. So join Magnus and John as they recount the adventures of Batman and Superman in comics. All is preparation for Batman and Superman's first adventure in live-action feature film. The adventure begins in December 2015. Batman v Superman. Only at twotruefreaks.com. Batman vs. Superman, a 13-part miniseries from Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Only at twotruefreaks.com. Super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and my whole thing is talking about comics, movies, and TV shows. Some people call it a mental illness. I call it Tuesday. Now, when I was a kid, I was a major devotee of Batman comics. As a matter of fact, there's a strong argument that... That's about the time that my Batman fandom kind of peaked. Now, everybody picks favorites, and I'm no exception. Probably my favorite era of Batman ranges from about 1991 to around 1995-96, around there. I just love that era of the character. 
I love those stories. I love those characters. I love those writers. I love those artists. I love those crossover events. I mean, to me, that's Batman. So I thought it'd be kind of fun to take a look back at one of those storylines. In fact, you could half-ass view today's storyline as a kinda sorta return to form. I'll get more into it later, but for right now, you should know that I'll be taking a look back at Batman number 516 and 517, a little two-part story entitled Sleeper. Now, I'm not gonna bullshit any of you. This story's probably not on anybody's greatest Batman stories ever told list. But at the same time, I first read it when I was really starting to study Batman. Not just read his stories, not just collect his comics, but study the character. Try to understand who he is, what makes him tick, and all of that stuff. Now, in and of itself, this storyline's not really crucial to what makes Batman work as a character. But at the same time, my argument is that this story's an unsung pivot point in Batman's history. This was the time when he started changing from what he had been into what he is now. Now, you should know that I didn't fully realize that when these books first came out. To me, these were just the new Batman comics that were coming out at the time. But at the same time, even as a 14-year-old, I think I subconsciously understood that Batman was starting to undergo a transformation beginning right here. And like I say, I'll get more into it later, uh, later on, but I think that a lot of important groundwork for Batman's psychological development, such as we know him today, was first planted right here. Anyway. If nothing else, this is a fun little read, and it's... It, to me, it's just... It's a really good time capsule of this era of Batman and everything that he was up to at the start of 1995. So, without further ado... This is Batman number 516, entitled Nightmares. Cover artist is Kelly Jones. Writer is Doug Minch. Penciler is Kelly Jones. Inker is John Beatty. Colorist is Adrienne Roy. Letterer is Todd Klein. Editors are Dennis O'Neill and Jordan B. Gorfinkel. Batman roams the night streets, stopping regular crimes. As he does so, he stews over the recent debacle that came from his really stupid decision to appoint Jean-Paul Valley to be his replacement after Bane broke his back. Elsewhere in the city, a mysterious woman, known only as Sleeper, performs a ritual to a sleep and death goddess. She makes a sacrificial offering of a human heart in exchange for a blessing. Meanwhile, Batman ro roams around through uh, Gotham City and ends up getting interrupted in the middle of his rounds by a call from the police radio which catches his attention. A series of murders under mysterious circumstances have recently taken place in Gotham, and so Batman decides to investigate the matter further. Elsewhere in the city, Sleeper chats with Remy her loyal follower and friend. Elsewhere, Batman notices that Commissioner Gordon didn't light up the bat signal like he normally would. He realizes that Gordon's been shutting him out lately, and he realizes that that may be just what he deserves considering all the fuck-ups he's made lately. 
From there, Batman visits one of the crime scenes and eavesdrops on the detective who's working the case. After that, Batman impersonates Commissioner Gordon and calls the GCPD forensic doctor, who reveals that this is the third murder of this kind lately. Same basic MO. The heart of each victim has been cut out, and a Chinese decoration has been left behind. The forensic doctor gives some other details about the murders, and Batman decides that he's on the case. Elsewhere in the city, Sleeper and Remy chit-chat some more. Later, at Mercy Hospital, Harvey Bullock's recovering from the coma that he slipped into, and Mackenzie Bach pays him a visit. They talk about stuff for a little while. The thin blue line, the police brotherhood, that kind of thing. Meanwhile, at police headquarters, Batman drops in on Gordon, who's been sleeping in his office lately as he and Sarah Essen are estranged. Gordon talks shit for a little while, and then reluctantly gives Batman the file about the murders before telling him to get the hell out. As all that's going on, Sleeper, in a vision, is ordered by the goddess to go out and kill somebody as another sacrifice. Needless to say, this is the gothest chick that any Batman comic has ever had before. Batman deduces who the next victim might be and sets out to stop the crime, but by the time he arrives on the scene, the victim's already been poisoned and died from an induced heart attack. Batman pursues Sleeper to the rooftop of the building, but isn't careful enough, and Sleeper gets the drop on him. He ends up inhaling some of the gas that she's used to kill her other victims. Batman starts feeling dizzy, and before too long he hallucinates some pretty nightmarish shit as he gradually finds himself at the mercy of Sleeper. To be continued. Which is a good lead-in for Batman number 517, Darkness in the Dream Chamber. Cover artist is Kelly Jones, writer is Doug Mensch, penciler is Kelly Jones, inker is John Beatty, colorist is Adrienne Roy, letterer is Todd Klein, editors are Dennis O'Neill and Jordan B. Gorfinkel. Under the influence of Sleeper's gas, Batman experiences terrifying hallucinations and ends up falling off the rooftop. Sleeper assumes that Batman was killed by the fall and leaves the place, but Batman has managed to survive by grabbing onto an old statue just a few inches off the ground. Meanwhile, back at her temple slash hideout, Sleeper begs her goddess for forgiveness because of her failure. Remy tells Sleeper not to worry about it and to continue worshiping the goddess. She continues doing so and avoids sleep at all costs. Technically, Sleeper failed in her mission to offer up a new, uh, another human heart to the goddess, but Remy's happy because Sleeper carried out another hit, as he calls it. Remy pats himself on the back for using Sleeper to kill his enemies and fooling the police into thinking they're dealing with a serial killer. Meanwhile, back at GCPD, Mackenzie Bach reports the events of the murder to Commissioner Gordon. Later that night at Wayne Manor, Bruce arranges a dinner with several guests, one of whom's Dr. Gnosis. Dr. Gnosis is an expert in the field of sleep deprivation. Bruce asks him a shitload of questions to better understand how the process of sleep deprivation works. He also asks about who else might be working on similar types of projects. All the clues Bruce has uh, put together up to this point all point to, back to the same man, Remy. Sleeper's supposed assistant. 
It turns out that Remy was a member of an agency that worked on hypnosis, making human weapons by interfering with the minds of the test subjects. The same that Mekros had belonged to. Elsewhere, Remy receives a call telling him that the sleeper uh, project has gotten out of control and that the agency is coming to bring him down. Remy tries to save Sleeper as he's fallen in love with her. He explains to Sleeper that they have to get the hell out of Dodge while they still can, but she's too unstable and ends up losing her shit and stabbing Remy in the chest. Remy knocks her out in self-defense, but cries in his beer over it because he never actually meant to hurt her. Not that it matters, because Batman arrives on the scene and the fight's on. Remy and Batman trade punches for a while when, before they get interrupted by an agent who shows up blows Remy away, and then gets knocked the fuck out by Batman. After that, Batman hits the road and leaves everything behind for the police to handle. In the end, Batman watches the sleeper from, from a distance. The injury left her in a coma, ironically in a permanent state of sleep. The end. So, what did I think? Well, it may be hard to remember now, but these comics were first published right after some serious shit had gone down in the Batman titles. First, there was the whole Nightfall, Night Quest, and Night's End chimichanga that was going on. After that, came Zero Hour. After that, came the Prodigal storyline where Dick Grayson served as Batman for a few months. After all that, the Batman titles somewhat split apart and each carved out its own tone and niche because Bruce Wayne was back in action as Batman. And so earlier when I was talking about how this was sort of a return to form, that's what I meant. This is, guys, you got to understand, this was like the first time that uh, Batman had been around in quite a, Bruce had been around, I should say, in quite a while. But anyway, from about this point, each of the Batman titles pretty much carved out its own little identity. Detective Comics was sort of a crime fiction book starring Batman and Robin. Shadow of the Bat was a psychological thriller, and Adjectiveless Batman was somewhat of a, of a horror comic book. But more than that, like I said before, this era was the first time that readers had gotten to read Bruce Wayne as Batman without some other bullshit going on in a couple of years by that point. So... In a way, I'd kind of liken this era to that time period right after Reign of the Superman in the Superman titles, where they did a kind of similar thing where they were, these were stories that were mostly meant to illustrate just how awesome Superman is. And this is the equivalent thing for Batman, in my opinion. Of all the Batman titles that was going on at the time, I thought that Batman, which is to say adjectiveless Batman, because I don't know what the hell else to call it, was probably the most interesting of them. And a great big part of that relates to Kelly Jones and his artwork. You see, Jones had done a lot of Batman covers up to that point. I mean, hell, I think he did the cover for every single Nightfall-related story that came out. And I think he did most of the Night Quest covers, too. And I'd be shocked if he didn't do all of the Night's End covers. But... This era of Batman was really my first opportunity to check out Kelly Jones and his work on a monthly title. And then as now, 
I felt the tone of this comic was probably closest to a Tim Burton Batman film in terms of tone. It's never daytime in Gotham City. Buildings are impossibly tall, twisted, and gothic. Deep, dark shadows loom over every page. The characters are all trapped in impenetrable nighttime, and overall, I just love this art. A good example of what I'm talking about comes on pages 9 and 10, where Batman impersonates Gordon and calls the coroner for details on the murders. He's just driving around through Gotham City while the coroner reviews his notes in his office. In the big scheme of things, this is just simple storytelling that you've probably seen a thousand times in a thousand comics, but what makes it awesome, in my opinion, is the mood and the tone of the art. The coroner works in a windowless office. The sun just can't penetrate the darkness that's surrounding Gotham City. All the characters are just swathed in shadows, and I just freaking love it. I love this art. It's awesome. Now, I'll be the first to admit that Kelly Jones has an art style that can only be called an acquired taste. It's not for everybody, but it's absurdly powerful and dark, and I just love it. That having been said, though, this storyline doesn't necessarily always cater to Kelly Jones's strengths as an artist. I mean, yeah, there are tons of panels with Batman crouching around and looming in shadows, zipping around the city in the Batmobile and all that stuff, but there are also more mechanical scenes with characters who are visiting one another in hospitals or going to dinner parties at Wayne Manor and shit like that. And for as awesome as Jones is... It's obviously hard for him to draw in a way that totally matches the tone and emotion of those types of scenes. Another weakness in all this is Jones drawing these big action sequences. I mean, again, his style is almost totally predicated on atmosphere and mood. So he can draw Batman skulking around the city like nobody's business, but Batman as a martial arts ass-kicker is less of Kelly Jones's forte. Now, keep in mind, I'm not saying the art's bad. In fact, I'm, I'm saying the total opposite. I'm saying the art's fucking awesome. But I'm also saying that Kelly Jones maybe isn't the best choice to do a mainstream monthly book like this. I've often wondered how things might have turned out if Kelly Jones had been teamed up with Alan Grant over on Shadow of the Bat. I mean, we'll never know, but it's interesting to think about, isn't it? Anyway, from there, you get into Doug Minch's writing. Now, I went on the record ages ago as a Doug Minch fanboy. I dig his take on Batman. But I also appreciate how Minch tends to tailor his stories to whoever's drawing his book. He wouldn't necessarily tell the same story in the same way if Jim Aparo had drawn this story as opposed to Kelly Jones. But since it was Kelly Jones... Minch gave him a lot of shit to work with that plays to Jones's strength. Not everything, but a lot of things. Another thing going on here is how certain subplots that were going on at the time in the Batman comics get advanced and repeated here. Commissioner Gordon and Batman are at serious odds over Batman's recent decisions and actions. And how could they not be? Batman 
seriously fucked up by giving Jean-Paul Valley the keys to the Batcave. Gordon's only holding Batman accountable for his decisions here. Now, when I was a kid, I'll be honest, I didn't completely buy into Gordon's beef against Batman. But as an adult, yeah, I totally see it. Why shouldn't Gordon be pissed off about everything that's happened? He and Batman are supposed to be allies, and Batman left Gordon completely in the dark about a pretty fucking serious decision. And none of this is incidental bullshit either. I think Batman took a lot of lessons from that whole Azrael Bane thing. But before I get into that, I want to tackle something else first. I've gone on the record long, loud, and often about not really liking that version of Batman who has a million contingencies. He's got every possibility covered, every impossibility covered, and he basically never makes any mistakes ever. My attitude was that I just didn't find that type of character interesting or entertaining to read about at all. I mean, where's the suspense in knowing that Batman could beat up Darkseid if he has a pair of nail clippers, an old engine block, and a half-empty bottle of Mountain Dew, you know? But here's the thing. Late in 2014, I went through a pretty heavy Batman reading project. I started with year one and then worked my way forward through a tasteful selection of Detective Comics and Batman issues, going right on through uh, to about 1997 or so. And all of a sudden, it made sense. I totally understood where the impossible Batman, the character that, that Kevin Smith calls the Bat-God, where he comes from. And speaking of Kevin Smith, ages ago, Smith had Grant Morrison on his Fat Man on Batman podcast, and Morrison talked about his view of Batman's history and continuity as encompassing all eras of the comics. Year one is where the character debuted, and then from there, he, kinda, he, he continued pretty much as we saw him in those early issues of Detective Comics from 1939 and 1940 by Bob Kane and... Bill Finger, that I talked about a couple of episodes back. And that basically was Batman's first year. His second and third years are all about joining forces with Dick Grayson, which, in retrospect, is maybe the happiest time of Batman's entire life. From there, you've got the late Golden Age of Batman, where he smiles a lot and battles aliens on other worlds and is Gotham City's most famous citizen and shit like that. And then from there... You get into the 1960s era where Batman, Robin, and the rogues gallery are all just going through the motions, but nobody believes in what they're doing anymore. After that, Dick Grayson packs up, goes off to college, Bruce and Alfred move into a penthouse in Gotham City, the darkness slowly starts returning, not long after that, Dick gives up being Robin, Bruce replaces Dick with Jason Todd, that doesn't work out so well. But as all that's going on, the Joker shoots Barbara and paralyzes her. And this, I think, was the first time Batman had come to understand just how dangerous things really are starting to get now. And not long after Barbara Gordon got paralyzed, Jason Todd gets murdered by the Joker. 
Batman might have been able to save him if he'd been faster or planned better or something. From there, Tim Drake joins the team and becomes the new Robin. After which, all this bullshit with Osriel and Bane happens, and everything's just fucking miserable after that. And here's my point. On more than one occasion, Batman is seen up close and personal, and even been victimized, by the fact that the way he used to do things just doesn't work anymore. Back in the old days, look, Batman could just jump into action, ambush a a big gang of thugs, and never have any real plan for doing it. But those days are gone. Every single time Batman doesn't plan ahead and cover all his bets, somebody else always pays the price. And we see the aftermath of all that right here. Batman spends a few pages in this story fuming over just how badly he's fucked up through all of this. And it's interesting to note that through the Night Quest storyline, that's really one of the last out-and-out mistakes that Batman's ever made. And so, I'm going to suggest to you that because of what happened with Barbara when the Joker paralyzed her, Jason when the Joker killed him, the entire fucking city when Bane fucked everything up and then Azrael fucked him up and, all, and other things that went on, the lessons that Batman took away from all those things revolved around his need to control everything and everyone. When Superman makes a mistake, he, he mourns his error in judgment for a little while, but then ultimately decides to do better next time not make the same mistake twice, to learn from the experience. That's not what Batman takes away from his failures. Rather than viewing it as a learning experience, an opportunity to get better, Batman sees it as his personal failure to control and plan for every possible variable. Rather than trying to grow and learn from his mistakes, Batman tries to control everything such that nothing like that can ever happen again. And for Superman, or for that matter, for any rational person, it's about growth and improvement. But for Batman, it's about a lack of control, a need to plan for every possible outcome, every unforeseen and even unforeseeable circumstance. Is the all-powerful, all-planning Batman as sympathetic to read about? Well... For me, no. But at the same time, I can't argue that it doesn't relate directly to his character arc and all of his experiences in major storylines. I mean, you'd think that somebody who went through half the shit that Batman did, starting in 1986, and then going right on through to 1995, would have a hell of a lot of lessons to show for it. And the main thing that Batman seemed to take from all of those experiences was that He has to control everything and everyone in order to guarantee victory. Now, is that an option that I, or rather an opinion that I personally agree with? Well, no, of course not. But it's a valid lesson for Batman to take from all of the failures and setbacks and negativity and darkness that he's experienced. And 
the reason that I'm being such a pain in the ass about this is because all of this never really added up for me until I went through that reading project a while back, and also because the master planner infallible bat god arguably began right here in this storyline that you and I just got through reviewing, with Batman stewing and brooding over his many and varied fuck-ups related to Jean-Paul Vallée. Anyway, it's just interesting, that's all I'm saying. And so that's pretty much it for this segment. I'm going to take a break and be right back after these messages. When you think of podcasts about religion, you probably think of this. But at least one religion podcast sounds more like this. I kick ass for the Lord! Dorkness to Light is a relatively geeky production in which Alan and Emily discuss topics of faith, religion, and spirituality. But we do so through the lens of pop culture, like movies, TV, and comic books, because we're nerds. Our primary focus will be on Christianity, because that's what we know best. But all religious content is on the table. Well, think about it, Scully, from vampirism to Catholicism. This is an occasional cast, to be recorded and released as the mood strikes, with topics ranging from in-depth reviews to personal rants about some small aspect of theology or church history, because we're theological nerds. If these topics interest you, check out Dorkness to Light, .blogspot.com for our more regular content. Or darknesstolight.tumblr.com for our more irregular content. Memes and puns, mostly. My bad. Darkness to Light. Often irreverent, rarely sacrilegious. In 1977, the world changed. The film industry was transformed. The popular culture rocked. And young minds forever altered. Star Wars arrived. And nothing would ever be the same again. Though everyone wasn't affected in the same way, everyone was affected. This is my Star Wars story. My Star Wars Story, monthly at mystarwarsstory.com.
Okay, I'm back now, and I'm ready to talk about some more Batman comics. Now, I spent the last segment working my way through a few issues of Batman comics from right after the conclusion of the Prodigal storyline. Overall, I think it'd be fairly accurate to say that the previous six months of comics before this period that I'm talking about right now were a kind of weird time for Batman. I don't know this to be absolutely true, but I get the impression that Bruce was originally intended to pass the mantle of the Batman over to Dick Grayson immediately after the conclusion of Night's End. Unfortunately, though, it didn't quite work out that way. And the reason for that's because Zero Hour hit right after Night's End wrapped up. And let's face it, there's really no way to get the full effect of Zero Hour, at least as it relates to the Batman titles, without Bruce Wayne wearing the cowl. So, Bruce stuck around for maybe a month or so after Night's End wrapped up, participated in Zero Hour, and then decided to go on whatever Navajo spirit quest the editor wanted him to go on, originally after the conclusion of Night's End. But I get the idea that if the Batman office could have had its way, Bruce would have hit the road right after the events of Legends of the Dark Knight number 64, which is to say, the conclusion of Night's End. But obviously that's not what happened. So whatever happened with Prodigal happened, and then Bruce came back to pick up more or less where he left off in the Batman titles. And it was pretty much right back to the status quo, at least superficially. And as I said in the last segment, each of the Batman titles split up and pretty much did their own thing. I mean, yeah, they had overlapping subplots, but by and large, this was an era where each title was telling its own story and, to a degree, even using its own cast of supporting characters. Now, as I hopefully made clear in the last segment, Batman, which is to say the monthly title, Batman, was... That was the horror uh, comic book of the bunch. While Shadow of the Bat was a... It was more of a psychological thriller, and that pretty much leaves Detective Comics to be the hard-boiled crime fiction title. Each Batman title staked out its own turf and told its own stories, and each was bringing something totally unique to the table, and just overall, I think this was a pretty inspired time for the Batman titles. Back in this era of comics, really nobody used the term event fatigue, but I think it'd be fair to say that a lot of readers were suffering from that at the time. The last two years up to that point, and arguably even longer than that, had been occupied with a pretty fucking huge storyline, and so I think it's obvious that the Batman office wanted to give readers a chance to catch their breath before plunging into the next multi-mega-ultra storyline. And so because of that, the Batman books were mostly kept separate from one another, except, as I say, for stuff like running subplots and things like that. And that's about as good an introduction as anything for what I want to talk about in this segment. Detective Comics, like I said before, was... This was the crime book. I talked about the first two issues of Batman in the post-prodigal era in the last segment, and it seems kind of stupid to ignore the first two issues of Detective Comics from the same exact time, so 
why not talk about those too? So here we are. Detective Comics number 683. Cover date is March 1995. Story is entitled Odds Against. Executive editor is Jeanette Kahn. Cover artists are Graham Nolan, Scott Hanna, and Bob LaRose. Writer is Chuck Dixon. Penciler is Graham Nolan. Inker is Scott Hanna. Colorist is Adrienne Roy. Letterer is John Costanza. Editors are Scott Peterson and Darren Vincenzo. Batman and Robin stop a robbery, but two of the thugs escape. They report what happened to their boss, the Penguin. Without a clue as to the connection of all of the recent robberies that have been going on, Batman and Robin start to suspect that a major criminal must be involved. At the Iceberg Lounge, a man known only as the Actuary is on a winning spree at Blackjack. He's taken to the owner and manager of the Iceberg, who's revealed to be the Penguin. The Actuary is forced to confess how he's managed to win all of these different hands of Blackjack. The actuary explains that he used to be a risk analyst, and so he's good at calculating odds. When the odds are too high, he just doesn't participate. When the odds are in his favor, he places the maximum bet in order to win, every time. Rather than having the man killed, the penguin hires him to work as a consultant to plan successful robberies. The actuary assures the penguin that with his intellect, Batman will never be able to bother him or his plans ever again. Meanwhile, Harvey Bullock's in a coma at the hospital. His partners, Rene Montoya and Mackenzie Bach, pay him visits, but three days have passed, and so far, he hasn't moved a muscle. Elsewhere, Batman and Robin follow their only lead to unravel who's behind all these robberies. They try paying a visit to Brigham Thomas, a known snitch who's been involved in past robberies, but when they arrive at the man's apartment, they're stunned by an explosion. Somebody's blown Brigham Thomas up specifically to keep his mouth shut. And so because of that, Batman and Robin are back to square one. Later, the Penguin celebrates that for the first time, he's one step ahead of the Batman. Lacking any other option, Batman pays a visit to Commissioner Gordon, who provides him with a little bit of information that he's required regarding the deceased thug, and then proceeds to shoot his mouth off to Batman a little bit. Batman finds some, some, some familiar names in the file that he obtained from Gordon and gets back on the track of the robberies. At the same time that all that's going on, Penguin sets his plan into motion and dispatches his thugs to rob the Gotham Stadium and stay with the spectators of the, uh, of the hockey game until the game's over, after which they just walk out the door like normal civilians. Everything goes as planned for a while, but eventually the thieves get ambushed by Batman and Robin. One manages to escape, but Batman's got a plan in mind to make the one that he caught spill the beans about the entire plan. Back at the Iceberg Lounge, the actuary's developed a, uh, he's developed a plan to prevent Batman from spoiling the next operation. Specifically, they'll be performing their next robbery during the daytime. To be continued. Which pretty much leads us right into Detective Comics number 684. Cover date is April 1995. Story is entitled Darkest Day. Executive editor is Jeanette Kahn. Cover artists are Graham Nolan, Scott Hanna, and Bob LaRose. Writer is Chuck Dixon. Penciler is Graham Nolan. Inker is Scott Hanna. Colorist is Adrienne Roy. 
Letterer is John Costanza. Editors are Scott Peterson and Darren Vincenzo. Batman's got Nico Vanetti tied up inside a morgue chamber in the old GCPD forensic annex in order to make him speak about the next planned robbery. Nico refuses to answer Batman, so Batman decides to leave him there for another day. Because maybe that'll change his mind. Meanwhile, back at the hospital, Harvey Bullock comes out of his coma and Renee Montoya and Mackenzie Bach pay him a visit. At that moment, the Penguin's reviewing the game plan once again. Elsewhere in Gotham City, Black Mass begins recovering all of his lost territory. Meanwhile, Batman finally gets a confession from Nico Vanetti. Nico reveals that the robbery is going to happen during the daytime at the flower show, specifically to prevent Batman from showing up. Elsewhere, the Penguin manages to infiltrate a giant-sized penguin made out of flowers at the flower show. The people are enjoying the exhibition in spite of some really weird dude standing around asking all sorts of obnoxious and aggravating questions. However, once inside, the Penguin's uh, henchmen exit the flower penguin and start robbing the charity money and loading it into a van. Suddenly, the lights get switched off and the indoor rain starts. It's revealed that someone's activated the artificial night in the simulated rain, and the clothes of the weird dude who was asking all sorts of obnoxious and aggravating questions are strewn across the floor. Batman appears out of nowhere to stop the thugs from stealing the money, and pretty much kicks the shit out of everybody. The police arrive and arrest all the crooks, after which someone makes an anonymous call to the police, informing them as to the location of Nico Vanetti, who's only too happy to be carted off to prison by that point. Later on, Batman confronts the Penguin at the Iceberg Lounge, and the Penguin forces the actuary to confess that the entire plan was his idea, and that the Penguin really had nothing to do with any of it. Penguin tells the actuary to be very careful in Blackgate, because a lot of bad things can happen there. Batman doesn't believe a single word of any of this, but he can't prove the whole thing was actually the Penguin's doing. The End So, what did I think? Well, for one thing, I should mention that this two-part story is the introduction of a revamped Penguin. Rather than being just a funny man in a tuxedo who commits bird-related crimes, the Penguin's sort of been recast here as a mob boss who sends his underlings out to do his bidding while he hides behind the veneer of supposed respectability as the owner of a nightclub, which is to say the Iceberg Lounge. Now, Tim Burton gets crucified a lot for not using this version of the Penguin in Batman Returns, but, uh, people? Batman Returns came out in 1992. This story that we're talking about didn't come out until 1995. So, unless Tim Burton can travel through time, there's probably no way that he could have adapted this version of the Penguin for his movie. But, moving away from that stuff... Like I said, this is a pretty straightforward crime story. Batman and Robin have to get their man, who's going way out of his way to escape detection. I mean, hell, it's only near the end of the story before Batman realizes that he's been chasing down the Penguin this entire time. This story was a really good palate cleanser for all the nightfall hoopla that had been going on lately, and... Honestly, it's just, it's a plain and simple Batman and Robin story up against one of Batman's most famous and iconic enemies. Plus, 
one thing about this story that really works for me is the Penguin's really trying to think creatively to keep Batman out of his business. And I mean, like, too often you see crooks in Gotham City robbing the same stuff again and again at nighttime, and they never refine their methods in order to account for Batman. Well, why the hell not? Batman's the badass supreme in Gotham City, and it's hard to believe that crooks far and wide wouldn't think creatively and try to invent ways of performing crimes in order, in order to avoid the Batman's interference. But here we see the Penguin actually doing it. And at first, it looks like he's somewhat deferring to the actuary and letting him plan all of the crimes, but... And, th and that would seem kind of like a a conflict with the Penguin's vanity and his huge ego, but I think the Penguin would recognize the value in having a risk analyst like the actuary on the payroll. The other thing here is, obviously, is that this allows the Penguin to have a fall guy to blame everything on if things turn out badly. Which, of course, they do. So, all around, this is a very logical and very tightly constructed story. Another interesting thing here in all this is that Robin is definitely a supporting character in this book. A secondary character, really. And I think that's because when this book was coming out, Tim Drake had his own comic book. So, I don't, I don't know this to be true, but my guess is Chuck Dixon reasoned that if people want to get to know Tim Drake as a character, they can read his comic book in order to do that. So Dixon wanted to use Robin in this story as a kind of, sort of, one-man army for Batman who doesn't really get a whole lot of character development. And honestly, that works for me too. If these comics were published in a world where Robin didn't have his own monthly book, I'd argue there'd be value in giving Tim more to do in this story, especially since this was the only main, uh, mainline Batman comic book that was coming out at this, at this exact moment that even included Robin. But since Tim has his own book, there's really no purpose in doing that, and that means that the story can be used to develop other conflicts and other subplots and other characters more. In fact... Robin isn't even in the second part of the story now that I think about it, so kudos to Chuck Dixon for realizing how best to use the limited number of pages he's got in order to tell his story each month. Now, as far as Graham Nolan's concerned, he's one of my favorite Batman artists of all time, and the reason for that's because he's got a sort of no-frills, very straightforward line style that's powerful and expressive, but ultimately it doesn't call too much attention to itself. It's there. It serves the story. But at the same time, I've never thought of Graham Nolan as a marquee, big-name artist that you endlessly hype on the cover of the comic book. But at the same time, each character in this story has a unique body shape and facial structure. And to kind of go off topic here a little bit, in the Night's End issues of Detective Comics, you could easily tell the difference between Bruce Wayne, Dick Grayson, and Tim Drake, whether they're wearing their masks at the time or not. And that's talent, people. But I guess to talk specifically about this story, in Detective Comics number 683, on page 5, the final panel there shows the actuary 
basically cleaning the dealer's table out. And people, you've seen this type of thing a thousand times in a thousand movies, but Nolan gives the crowd of strangers and nobodies the right kind of sketchiness for people who are just hanging around a casino while a high roller destroys the dealer. The air is filled with smoke and atmosphere. The panels crammed to overflowing with unsavory characters. And if you ask me, this is just ridiculously good graphic storytelling. You know? Or here's another one. On pages 19 and 20, that same issue, Batman and Robin drop in on the hockey arena thieves. And I got to tell you, it's really not much of a fight. Batman grabs one of the cook, uh, crooks, punches him in the stomach, and then punches him in the face. And... That's pretty much the end of the fight. So that means that Graham Nolan really only had uh, just a couple of panels to get the job done. And so he finds the most efficient way possible to show us what an ass kicker that Batman is while not using 12 pages in order to do it. It's just, if you ask me, this is just really solid and very efficient storytelling. In other words, it's the perfect companion to a writer as talented as uh, Chuck Dixon. Anyway. Kind of like the sleeper storyline. This two-part penguin storyline here probably doesn't show up on a whole lot of best-of lists for Batman stories, but I've always really enjoyed it. I mean, I, I don't know. It's uh, it, there's just something about this story that just that just plays for me, and it's so perfectly representative of this era of Batman comics. Now, I don't know if this story has ever been reprinted anywhere, but Honestly, it's not like the original comics are going to set you back all that much, so go ahead and check this story out. Satisfaction guaranteed. So, that, I think, is pretty much the, uh, the end of it for me this week. So, now as to next week, uh, what I've got lined up, I'm going to talk about several issues of the Batman Adventures, the, the sort of spin-off book uh, tie-in related to Batman the Animated Series. I've always loved that comic book. And so I'm going to talk about a shitload of Batman Adventures issues uh, next week. But that's next week. So for right now, bye, everybody. I'll see you next week. Jeff hey Mike I'm trailing man it sure is great to be back to FCTC after such a long time yes it is and we've been away so long yeah but real life and you know what I, I just I just can't do this can't do what we have taken more breaks from this show than my wife has had in her entire life I mean we can talk about real life getting in the way which it has but it's it's just not fair so we're not going to joke around, and we're going to simply say that for the moment, we're back, and there's a lot of neat stuff to talk about. Like Season 2 of Lois and Clark. And the death of Clark Kent. And the launch of Superman the Man of Tomorrow. And the return of Lex Luthor. And the trial of Superman. And Underworld Unleashed. 
<laughs> the show can still be found at the Superman homepage, as well as at the Fortress of Bailytude. And we're still part of the Superman Podcast Network. So From Crisis to Crisis is back. For now. And it will still come out on Thursdays. Most week at www.fortressofbailytude.com, www.supermanhomepage.com, or www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Okay, doing the new promo. Do not say take the dare. Do not say take the dare. Okay, go. Hello, darling. Nice to see ya. It's me, J. David Weeder, the Conway Twitty of podcasting. But please, call me Dave. I host a show called Dave's Daredevil Podcast, where I talk about Marvel's Man Without Fear and Netflix superstar Daredevil. But I'm here to tell you that things have changed. Don't worry, I've still got more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at and a desperado love for Daredevil. And episodes of the show still come out each and every Sunday. But now, Dave's Daredevil Podcast is part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. That's right, the show can now be found at twotruefreaks.com, home of Earth's mightiest podcasts. And if you haven't tried the show before, I see the want to in your eyes. So take the time to check out Dave's Daredevil Podcast, because sometimes you need a podcaster with a slow hand. Dave's Daredevil Podcast, every Sunday at twotruefreaks.com. Take the dare. I have no self-control. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at Trentus Magnus at gmail.com Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday and that's a promise Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows That's right Simply click the PayPal link donate any amount at all Tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. 
you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Do not remove this tag under penalty of law. All models are over the age of 18. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with DeMonzacore of Milan, Italy.